proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The confessional collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have pastor, planter, as well as author, John Payne. John, how are you doing? Doing great, Aaron. Thank you. Good to be here. John, could you give our listeners just a 30-second update of who you are and what you've been up to? Yeah. Uh, I'm originally a, a California boy. I grew up on the West Coast. Uh, I went to Clemson University in South Carolina uh, to play soccer for four years and uh, then uh, went on from there to play professionally for uh, five years while at the same time uh, going to seminary at, at RTS Charlotte. Uh, I guess to back up just a little bit, I was converted after my sophomore year at Clemson. I had a radical conversion from a life of wildness and debauchery and sin and uh, and God radically saved me and uh, from there really synonymous with that conversion was a call to, to ministry and so even while uh, going on with finishing soccer at Clemson and also playing professionally for a few years I was able to, to go to seminary at RTS Charlotte uh, from there uh, married my lovely wife Marla we've been married for uh, almost 18 years uh, we have two children uh, Mary Hannah 12 years old and uh, Hans Martin, who's 10. And um, yeah, we, uh, as far as ministry wise, after graduating from seminary, went to RT, I mean, went to uh, uh, Carriage Lane PCA, uh, which is located in Peachtree City, Georgia. I was a youth pastor there for three years. Uh, from there, went on to do postgraduate work at the University of Edinburgh. And then from there, uh, took a pastorate at a very young a newly particularized PCA church in Douglasville, Georgia, called Grace Presbyterian Church. Was there for 10 years, and just uh, at the end of that, towards the end of that 10 years, I was challenged to uh, to go and plant a church, and that's that's where I am now and where I've been for about two and a half years here in Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks, John. I have a question for you. We usually ask all of our guests to kind of give a little bit of background. And so I'm going to ask you just a series of questions to find out who you're reading, who, what authors in the past you appreciate. Um, my first question is this. Who's your favorite old dead guy? My favorite old dead guy. Uh, one of the first guys that comes to mind is someone I've uh, done a, a bit of research on and someone who's uh, staring at me right now from my study wall, and that's John Owen. Why is John Owen one of your favorites, and why did you choose to do your study on him? Yeah, John Owen, uh, he's just a very interesting figure, isn't he? Uh, One of my favorite periods of history is the mid-17th century and uh, surrounding uh, the English Civil Wars, and um, uh, Owen was right in the center of that, both uh, ecclesiastically uh, and uh, politically. Uh, He's just a a very... uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, historical figure, and then, of course, his his writings, his theology is um, 
uh, is so so meaningful and significant and uh, and, and pastoral uh, in in many places. Though at times people get uh, uh, they feel like it's a bit laborious to work through some of his works, and 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 it is it is hard work at times. But uh, he is uh, he's a, a true pastor scholar, and anybody who would take the time to read his stuff will will be the the better for it. Is there a particular book you'd recommend to our listeners to say, hey, start with this? I'd say, first of all, uh, Communion with God hmm. would be uh, one to start with. Uh, the Glory of Christ as well that he wrote right before he died. Uh, his Communion sermons, which I spent a little time studying over in Edinburgh, uh, are wonderful to read through. Uh, the Death of Death and Death of Christ. Of course, some of his more more sort of popular ones are... Uh, uh, dealing with um with sin of sin and temptation uh and th- those were so really you you can't go wrong uh i would i would really encourage our, your listeners to read read Simone you can you can even get abridged versions through banner of truth but uh, to go straight to the uh the full the full uh volumes are, are even better wonderful the next question is who's a more modern theologian who regularly kind of punches you in the gut, kind of brings conviction, has, uh, has God has used more recently in your life? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I have to admit, I, I'm mostly reading uh, Dead Guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, recently, I'll just tell you a couple of books I've, I've read that, that have had an impact. I mean, I, you know, of course, throughout the years, I mean, early in my walk with God, John Piper, John MacArthur had a huge impact on me. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, massive impact. I think I've read every sermon uh, in, in his collection of sermons in Ephesians and Romans and, and others. Uh, huge, huge impact on me. Um, uh, in terms of just very recently, I, I finished uh, Carl Truman's book on Luther, which uh, was surprisingly devotional uh, throughout, even though it's a, a historical book. Um, uh, also, uh, Ian Murray's works, biographical works have, have always been a, a great encouragement. Just finished reading Sean Lucas's book on the continuing church, uh, which I would encourage every every Presbyterian to read who is concerned about uh, uh, keeping things going in the right direction and seeing how things can very quickly go in the wrong direction if we don't hold fast to our confession. I just picked that book up myself. I'm excited to start reading it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Just started a a book with our men on our Thursday morning Bible study on uh, what does the Bible say about homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, really have enjoyed uh, getting into that. Um, just read recently read Hole in Our Holiness by DeYoung as well. And really anything by DeYoung you can pick up is going to be worthwhile and, and, and helpful. In, um, in all of this reading from the old dead guys to the more modern scholars that you mentioned, what theological topic or issue would you say gave you the greatest difficulty in your own development? Well, uh, I'd say working through uh, uh, pedo-baptism was a challenge uh, in the early days. Um, there were some things I read, actually some, uh, read some John Owen that really impacted my thinking on that. Um, and, and, of course, studying covenant theology really helped me with that. I'd say really early on, uh, it was predestination. You know, I think some of these topics are the ones that, that generally people will struggle with when they're being introduced to the Reformed faith. But um, at the end of the day, uh, your, your professor and mine at RTS Charlotte, uh, Doug Kelly, he would say to us in class, 
sometimes your emotions need to catch up with the truth. But, but for now, you need to bow the knee to what the Bible teaches. And uh, that really impacted me uh, at the time. And I, I share that advice with others when, when they're having a hard time, even with, it, with just what they're reading in their Bibles. I mean, if you go to Romans 9 or John 6 or Ephesians 1, you know, you're, you're, and you don't believe in the, the sovereignty of God and election and predestination, well, then you're going to have a big problem with large chunks of the Bible. Um, and so, you know, I just tell folks, you know, yeah, you might be emotionally having a hard time with this as you get to know God and as you uh, discover uh, truths from his word, but eventually your emotions are going to catch up and you're going to recognize that uh, not only do you need to believe this, but this is beautiful and it's, it, it really makes a lot of sense when we understand who God is. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the reason I bring up the theological topic is um, the issue of today, I think, that has been brought out, even J.I. Packer has kind of brought it to the forefront, is a lack of holiness, the, the doctrine of sanctification. Um, I know there's been a lot more written recently on that, and especially in re a relationship to a proper understanding of sin and how that affects justification and monergism, as well as uh, the doctrine of sanctification and synergism and our responsibility in that pursuit of holiness. I know that you belong to a network called Gospel Reformation Network, which is a PCA network, and its focus is on sanctification. Why is this network kind of come to the forefront, and why do you think that sanctification and a and a network that focuses on sanctification is so necessary today? Yeah, it's a great question, Aaron. A few years ago, uh, several of us uh, in the PCA. Um, I'll just let you know some of the guys that are on on the council would be Ligon Duncan, uh, Harry Reader from down in uh, Birmingham, David Strain down at First Pres Jackson. Uh, Jason Halopoulos, who works with uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, up in East Lansing, uh, Rick Phillips, Richard Phillips, who's at Second Pres uh, Greenville, uh, Mel Duncan, also who's at Second Pres Greenville, who helps to uh, administer it. And um, uh, these, these guys, we basically came together and said, all right, there's clearly a trajectory that is of great concern in the PCA. And uh, and a lot of it, quite frankly, was led through the preaching and writings of Tullian Tavijan. And um, we were all very concerned, not only for him personally, but for the teachings that were impacting particularly a lot of the young people coming up in the PCA. And uh, it's this really truncated view of grace, uh, really that, the, that grace only entails justification and has very little to do with sanctification. We were concerned with this kind of uh, rhetoric. Um, uh, and so we basically banded together and said, let's provide uh, some resources. Uh, let's, let's do some lectures. Let's, uh, uh, let's breathe some good theology on sanctification into the PCA uh, to help people to think through these important issues. So that's, that's really how it was founded, and it's been going for about five years now. And right now what we do is we focus on ministering during the, the, the time of the General Assembly uh, of the PCA, and we get involved in teaching some of the official seminars that take place prior to the business of the church, as well as uh, we have a luncheon where we last year had uh, over 200 men come together, have lunch. Um, uh, we have a speaker, and, uh, and we just try to make people aware that it's important that we're teaching our congregations 
the third use of the law, uh, that the law is not only that which exposes our sin and, and, and points to our need for a Savior, uh, but the law is also that which is a guide for the Christian life, for those who are converted. So if you think of it this way, uh, the law condemns us. Uh, the law is, is a hammer uh, until you are in union with Christ, and then the law uh, becomes uh, that which Christ hands you with nail-scarred hands and said, here, now this is how you can serve me and love me in response to the grace uh, that you've received. And of course, even that is all by grace. Sanctification is by grace, uh, but it entails more than simply looking back to your justification. Uh, it entails uh, all of the beautiful intricacies of the, of the law of God and how it uh, calls us to, to grow in, in godliness and holiness in the Christian life. It does, it does nothing to undermine the gospel when you have a robust confessional view of sanctification. It does everything to glorify the gospel, that, 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 that uh, the good news is that we've been saved from both uh, the condemnation and the power of sin. Uh, that there's a renovation project going on in the lives of Christians, and that's part of the good news of, of grace in Christ. Yeah, I was listening recently to uh, Carl Truman's Mortification of Spin, and he had um, uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner on there, whose newest book on justification. And they got involved in this very similar dialogue about the issue of sanctification and justification. And they were talking about the uh, the, the problems of that they see manifesting itself in sanctification are as equally rooted in some people's understanding of justification. And they gave the example of a lot of N.T. Wright's um, current writing and how some it's, it's made it a, a, an impact. And one of the things that they brought out that I thought was an interesting point was that N.T. Wright has a skewed view of sin. He doesn't see it as, as evil as it really is, and it's affected his justification understanding. And I can see how that spills over into people's understanding of sanctification. I, didn't, I would like to just kind of hear your thoughts on some of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that uh, a part of this, I mean, there, it's, it's a very complex issue, and there are many, many spokes on the wheel that, that, that cause this kind of antinomian spirit uh, in, in our midst, which I think is very real. It's there. I, I hear from pastors regularly who are struggling with members in our congregation or, or ordained members of their presbytery who have a very difficult time with the idea that Christians need to be called to holiness, even though it's very clearly said in Scripture in 1 Peter 1 and many, many places that, that we are called to be holy as God is holy. Uh, but certainly one of that part, as you mentioned, is, uh, is a, a very uh, low view of uh, the heinousness of sin. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, we live in a narcissistic age, and we, we really don't see sin as being as sinful as it is and, uh, and as, as re repulsive to a holy God as it is. So it's a, it's, a, it's a low view of the holiness of God. It's a high view of ourselves. It's, a, it's shrugging the shoulders at the, the sin that, that uh, put Jesus, the, the, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, on the cross. And it's not until we see the heinousness of, of our own sin that we really recognize uh, the glory and the loveliness of Christ crucified for us. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that what you're saying is, is true. Um, the more we grow in holiness, the more we will, we will see sin for what it really is, and the more we'll love Christ for, for, for dying with our sins upon him on the tree. 
I want to kind of uh, turn the page of our discussion and move to church planting. I know that's heavily what you're involved in right now. And I want to talk a little bit about the challenge that came four years ago from Richard Phillips to plant a different kind of church um, in the sense of what your philosophy of church planting is. And just kind of from the roots of where that challenge came from and why, uh, why plant another church in Charleston, South Carolina. Rick came to me, uh, we were at a conference uh, together, and he came and challenged me knowing that uh, I had an affinity with Charleston. My my wife lived here on the Charleston Peninsula for eight years, going to, to college and graduate school and working here. Uh, also, um, I played pro soccer here for the Charleston Battery, and we, we, we met here uh, at church. And and then over the years, uh, Marla's family has rented uh, homes here during the summer for us to have family reunions on, on Folly Beach. And, um, uh, and so we've always loved this area. Uh, the area is a very strategic area. It's, it's booming with growth. I mean, it's one of the fastest growing areas in the whole country. And it's, it gets a lot of publicity. It's the number one travel destination in North America uh, through Travel and Leisure magazine for like five years running. Um, uh, businesses are flocking here. Uh, every kind of aspect of culture is, is blossoming here. And so we just have seen it as a real strategic place. You know, why another church? Well, you know, we, we believe that, that in Charleston, there's because of the, the the booming economy and the the extraordinary growth, I think I read this morning that uh, that like nine thousand jobs have been created here in the last couple of years, and part of that's through Boeing coming in and Volvo coming in. But uh, just again, extraordinary growth. So with that, we we see an opportunity uh, to make an impact uh, by preaching the gospel and and planting a new church and. And quite frankly, an, another reason we came is, you know, we recognize that the evangelical landscape uh, isn't so pretty when you evaluate it from the, the standpoint of being reformed and confessional in our convictions. And uh, we, we believe that so much of what's going on in the evangelical church today is, is not only unbiblical, <laughs> but it's distasteful. Uh, there's a, a large church in our area with a lot of wonderful, fine people in it that just started uh, drive-through communion. Uh, you know, pick up your baggie and, and, and do it on your own time. Um, the, the kind, the, the lack of, of rich expository preaching and a serious understanding and, and uh, administration of and, and participation in the, the sacraments and serious mindset on prayer and, and personal and family piety. I mean, these things are, are, are hard to find. And we, we hear that from the people coming to us, that they, they find it very difficult uh, to locate a church that's basically serious about discipleship. And so when we came in, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and let me say with a caveat, uh, you know, there are churches here who are preaching the gospel and love the Lord. We would have differences from them confessionally or uh, perhaps in some ways we do things, and we we appreciate them. We've worked together with some, and we're thankful for that that partnership. But but you know there are six seven hundred thousand people in the Greater Charleston area, and um, that's a lot of people. And a lot of those folks are unchurched, and a lot of those folks are are underchurched. I would put it. Uh, they're really not being discipled. They're really not being shepherded by anybody. And so 
we want to, uh, to, to have an impact uh, on that scene. And so that's why we came here uh, two and a half years ago and, and had our first worship service, and uh, the Lord has been blessing ever since. Were you received well by other churches? A lot of times when I talk to church planners, they'll say how hard it is to uh, get other churches just to be friendly to a church planner because everyone's so territorial. Yeah, I would say this. Um, it's important for any church planter when they come into an area, whatever area it is, to reach out uh, to fellow uh, pastors and to establish uh, a relationship. And I'm not saying that you have to be best friends with every pastor in your town. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. People, We just don't even have time for that kind of a thing. But it's important that we, as we come in, reach out because there's not going to be a whole lot of those that are here reaching out, uh, sadly, but it's true. Now, uh, there are a couple of, uh, of guys that reached out to me when I came into town, and I will never forget it. And uh, one of those is an Anglican uh, guy who actually is a, a John Owen guy as well, and we uh, have, uh, have some affinities there and um, have the same uh, heart for the gospel and for church planting and he reached out to me before we even moved here. He had gotten wind when I was coming. And um, anyway, that was a big encouragement. But I think the, I guess what I would pass along to any young church planters or guys thinking about going into church planting, it's really important that you initiate with the guys in the area. They may not uh, respond. They may not reciprocate. But you need to be the one to humble yourself and to reach out. And, and as, as I've done that, uh, I've seen a wonderful response by a lot of, a lot of guys who – um, really, I have established a good relationship and good rapport with. I uh, heard from an old, older man who had uh, been doing church planning. He told me um, to tell the young guys when they come into an area to come with a posture of humility. And what he said is a lot of times if they can go in and be willing to buy the existing plan, uh, pastor a cup of coffee and just ask, you know, share with me what you've learned about this, about this, about these people, about this city, about this context, it really can lower the defense walls as opposed to thinking you're the, 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 the hope alone, you're the savior riding in on the white horse um, to the community. And I've noticed too many church planters view themselves that way. They think, well, nobody here preaches the gospel. I'm going to come in and preach the gospel. And here I hear you saying, no, it's important to connect with everyone in that community, even if there are some theological differences, because, you, because in the sense we're coming in the spirit of Christ. That's right, and 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 it's it's really important not to communicate that uh, you're the you're the savior of the city, and that you know gospel preaching hasn't taken place until now. Now that I'm here, and yeah, that that's uh, that's a very bad way to come in. And um, you know, we're thankful, particularly for the evangelical uh, Anglican community here in Charleston that that made a strong stand against liberalism and even as you may have read, uh, had to go to the, the Supreme Court uh, to eventually win uh, the case to keep their property. And uh, you're talking about some of the most historic, glorious <laughs> Anglican properties in the country here in downtown Charleston. And we, we, we thank God for that victory. We prayed for them publicly from our pulpits about that case. And so we're thankful for their strong stand for orthodoxy, and we praise the Lord for them. And, and we have several churches here, uh, PCA churches in the area, 
uh, as well that uh, we are friendly with, of course, and we pray with and, and, and get together with uh, regularly. John, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, philosophy of planting. It's a little different than what you read in a lot of the textbooks. Um, it's a little different than maybe what you hear at a lot of the conferences people are paying to go to. And um, I heard you say recently in a podcast that your philosophy of ministry is the means of grace. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yes. Um, I think it's important to drive away this notion that there's something mystical or mysterious about church planting uh, that's, that's, that's you know, somehow incredibly different than, than just pastoring a church. Um, there are way more similarities to being uh, the pastor of a, of, of a, of a small or mid-sized church uh, and a church plant than there are dissimilarities, I would say. The, the big difference would be the gathering side of things. There is a sense in which you always feel like there's a fire under you to, to be a gatherer and to be meeting with people. And uh, while that does need to be on the priority list of a, of a pastor of a church, um, it, it, it really needs to be a major priority in the schedule of a church planter. And so that, that's, that's you know, an important aspect of that. But you know, the, it's where, where does the confidence lie? That's, that's the big you know, question that comes out of, um, of this idea of what is our philosophy of ministry? Where does our confidence lie? And our Aaron, our confidence is not in uh, in my personality, my gifts, my wisdom. Uh, my confidence is not in those who we could draw into the church. My confidence is not in some, you know, slick uh, uh, philosophy that I've learned from uh, from some large church that uh, has been very successful. My my philosophy is. Um, to put my confidence in the ordinary means of grace, namely the word, the sacraments and prayer. These, these are the means that God himself in his wisdom has ordained, has instituted, has given to his church to build his church. Uh, Christ said, I will build my church. The next question we ask is how, how, how will he build his church? Uh, what tools will he use? And the answer is that he'll do it through uh, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And as we, if we examine our Bibles, we'll see that that's always the way uh, that he has uh, uh, convicted, uh, converted, and comforted his elect. And so with, with a, a strong uh, Reformed theology uh, in, in place, uh, we can go forth with confidence, knowing that God will save his people from their sins. Christ will build his church. Uh, the Holy Spirit will draw the elect, but he'll do it in his way and on his terms. And that's through uh, the ordinary means of grace. One of the things we say to our young church planners who are in our residencies and internships is constantly reminding them to look through the, the book of Acts. And as you see the multiplication of the disciples, it's always in association with the multiplication of the word. And the, the connection there is important. And I see so many people disjoining that and making word ministry less important where philosophical strategies become more preeminent. Um, one of the things I heard you say a number of years ago that really uh, spoke to me was you said you're not impressed by the planter who plants a thousand churches. 
but you're impressed by the planter who buys a cemetery plot where he's planting. That spoke to me because I got called into the ministry of revitalization and I saw myself as here for the long haul and that if I was going to have success in a in a biblical terms of, of, of discipleship making, it wasn't going to happen through one sermon or through uh, one series of, of, of the Bible. It was going to be a faithful uh, uh, pastoring and shepherding of God's people. And so can you speak a little more to that and just give us or kind of work that out to, for these young guys who are listening? Yeah. You know, when you're young, you typically overestimate how quickly you can bring reform to a church or how quickly you can plant a, church, a healthy church, biblical church. Um, and so one thing that was said to me several years ago, uh, really, I think James Montgomery Boyce said this many years ago, but it was relayed through one of his protégés said, uh, John, don't, uh, overestimate what you can do in five years, uh, and don't underestimate, uh, what can be done in 20 years. And, um, that really was an encouragement to me to, to remind me that this is a long haul. This is a marathon. This is not a, a 5K. Uh, this is going to take time and relationships take time. And uh, uh, raising up uh, and, and cultivating through the ministry of the word um, strong elders and deacons, uh, it's going to take time. And so when you're young, when you're a young man, you tend to be more zealous and uh, I assume perhaps overzealous. And you think things can happen faster than they are uh, a lot of times meant to. Uh, we're sort of, you know, kicking the door of God's will in rather than waiting uh, for him to, to, to open it for us in his timing. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's important that we have the long view in ministry. Uh, we don't know how long the Lord will keep us in different places. I, 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 I hope and pray <laughs> uh, that the Lord will keep us here for the rest of our lives. We, we plan on that. And we we always said if we ever left the Atlanta area where we were in a church we were very happy in, that's a wonderful Christ-centered church, that uh, we would only go to where we think we could spend the rest of our lives. And uh, we're not going to go places for a little short, uh, uh, you know, uh, periods of time. Uh, we want to be committed for the long haul. Well, what you say mirrors so well the history of where missionaries would go overseas and actually bring their coffins with them. And <laughs> I think so much we need to have that same mentality in church planning. So I appreciate the comments regarding that. I want to take a few minutes and just look at uh, your priorities, your core values, if you will, at your church plant, um, Christ Church. And I'm just going to list them out, and maybe you could say a few words through each one. Um, but the first is that you guys are about God-centered worship, and you say it's our highest priority. Can you kind of flesh that out for us? Yeah. Um, if you remember just after Pentecost uh, in Acts 2.42, which was a, a defining uh, uh, foundational text for the Protestant reformers regarding worship, and the Reformation of worship, uh, Acts 2.42 says that those early Christians, those 3,000 were added to the church, Pentecost had just happened. What is it that they were devoted to? Well, the Bible says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so worship uh, 
it must be the main activity of the church because it is it is why God made us and it's why God saved us. Uh, worship is the chief activity of the Christian. All of life worship, what we call sort of Romans 12, 1 and 2 worship, uh, and then also formal times of worship, uh, which we see both of those aspects of worship in the Bible, uh, formal worship being uh, uh, private worship, family worship, and uh, and as the Westminster Confession says, most solemnly in public worship, as a gathered saints on the Lord's Day. Uh, so it's from that place of worship, uh, what some would call covenant renewal, where God is renewing his covenant with his people, declaring to them uh, his uh, covenant loyalty and love uh, uh, towards his people through and in Jesus Christ, and his people responding to those promises through word and sacrament with love, wonder, and praise, and and uh, and overtures to God of increasing measures of obedience and love and devotion, that there's that beautiful dialogue that's taking place between God and his people in public worship. And that that is ground zero of discipleship, Aaron. You know, some people, because of um, some of the parachurch organizations, uh, have really defined discipleship in people's minds as small groups and one-on-one over coffee at a, at a coffee shop. And I challenge that notion. I, I think that discipleship 101 that the, and, and ground zero of discipleship uh, it takes place in public worship, where you have uh, the holy God uh, calling his his holy redeemed people into worship, and you have his holy men, that is his ordained servants, uh, administering, preaching the holy word, administering the holy sacraments, and um, and all of this is taking place on the holy day of the Sabbath. That there's something extraordinary and special about God's presence meeting with His people. So you have a kind of a theology of presence going here. We see, you know, God is everywhere, but in the Bible we see Him manifesting His presence at different times and in different places, particularly when His people are gathered together. And so, with this, we believe that God-centered worship is the priority of the church. And from that place of of discipleship happens all kinds of other uh, kinds of discipleship. Uh, through uh, small groups, through Bible studies, through one-on-one, you know, discipleship, that all s- springs out of public worship, and um, and so, and also, of course, evangelism and outreach would spring out of that place of of God-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled discipleship in the context of the public assembly. So we, when we started our church plant, we didn't start with a Bible study or. A small group in a, in a living room. We actually started with public worship. Now, you know, we 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 had a feeling that there were going to be a lot of people interested in what we were doing. Quite frankly, when we had our first worship service, that was our kind of first official ministry meeting, and uh, we we didn't know if there were going to be you know more than twenty five people to show up. We just had no idea, and it turned out that uh, that one hundred and seventy people showed up. Wow. Uh, we had to turn people away from the doors. Now, a lot of those were from supporting churches that came to encourage us. Some of our friends from Savannah at IPC and and, and other churches came and, and encouraged us. So there probably were a lot there. But we we after that initial week, we we were at about 90, 80 or 90 people were coming every week to our evening worship service. So we started with worship to to make that clear point that this church, the main work of this church is going to be 
the worship of God as he ministers to us through his means of grace. And as we respond to that with, uh, with devotion and love and, and growing obedience. And from that place, we would, we would disperse and, and, and scatter and make an impact in our community. You say the second value is the means of grace. You say they're central. We've talked about that already as your philosophy of ministry. But the third uh, marker of your core value says Christian history and tradition are valued. And to put that as a marker says a lot about who you are and what you're doing. Um, Want to flesh that out a little bit for us? Sure. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who who blamed uh, us for being uh, chronological snobs. And it's true. In our day, you have this phenomenon of contemporaneity where the idea in people's minds uh, it's that whatever happened, whatever happens today must be better than whatever happened yesterday. Whatever has been created today must be better than what was made before. And so there's this, uh, this contemporaneity that exists within the minds of, uh, of 21st century Americans that uh, needs to be called into question uh, because uh, so much of what is happening today is 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 wrong and, and sinful, and it, it defies God and His Word, and and so we need to to be able to look back and to to gain from what has happened in the past. I mean, our, our very foundation of our faith is is in a historical event that took took place two thousand years ago, right? And and, and uh, beyond that, um, there's so much we can learn from pastors and theologians and scholars of the of the past uh you know so many of the modern christian writers are are very superficial and do not come near the depths and the richness of of the theological um adeptness and uh, devotional uh, uh richness of you know the puritans the reformers and so I think that what we want to do is we want to embrace the best of what has gone before us and, and the best of, of what we have now that are really drawing from those wells. Well, what's interesting to me is how contrary that is to what most church planners think because of the need to be new and relevant, the idea to be uh, unique and trying to just kind of how best can we serve this community? Obviously, the old isn't working, so let's let's jump to something different. And... Um, uh, that that then that, that core value really spoke to me again coming from a church that's 113 years old and we're not just dismissing the past we want to build off of the past but obviously we want to be speaking into today's people but we don't dismiss we want to learn from and and bring from the past and stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before so I, that one really resonated with me personally as a core value. The the next two are evangelism and mission as important and the body of Christ loving one another. And I just kind of bring that together and, and work those out for us. Yeah, evangelism and mission. We, we really want to make the point that um, if you're serious about doctrine and your, con- your Reformed confession – that doesn't immediately mean that you are unconcerned about evangelism mission. And so many people want to uh, say that you have to be committed to one or the other. And, and really to be committed uh, to the one is to dismiss the other. And I, I don't buy that. Um, I, I want to fight against that notion. Uh, at Christ Church Presbyterian, we are 
absolutely committed to to careful exegetical preaching of the Word of God. We preach through books of the Bible. Um, I've just finished preaching through Habakkuk in our evening services. Um, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Luke. I'll preach my 80th sermon in Luke uh, this Sunday uh, from Luke 19 on on Zacchaeus. Um, I've preached through several other books in the past couple of years. Uh, We're committed to Lectio Continua reading in our services. Um, we're, we're, we're committed to, uh, to drawing attention to reformed history and our confessions and all of these things and catechizing our kids. However, all of that in no way dismisses the urgent call to our people to be salt and light and to evangelize our community. And so we have visitors, new visitors in our church every Sunday, and, and most of them are being invited by our own people who are just excited about the gospel, excited about what we call serious-minded biblical discipleship. And, and so uh, we, we just got back from a missions trip to uh, Lima, Peru, where we did a couple of vacation Bible schools. I, I did a Bible conference over there. Uh, lots of other things happened as well. We we are committed to mission, to evangelism, and uh, we are not backing off of that one inch. I really believe that that true gospel preaching, true discipleship will inflame a heart for evangelism and mission. The, the, what what aggravates me more than anything are guy reform guys. They want to sit around and drink their scotch and smoke their cigars and talk about John Owen and not give one care or concern for their neighbor who is lost and dying and on the, the road to hell, uh, that to me is a misunderstanding of Reformed theology, not an application of it. It goes back uh, to what Christ said when he said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. The idea is come it, to go, <laughs> gather indeed, to scatter. Yeah. Indeed. The, the Great Commission makes it very clear that the church is meant to go and— um, and so we, there, there can't be inertia. There needs to be movement and, uh, and progress. And, you know, it, it might not always look how we want it to look. It might not always turn out how we want it to turn out. And as many people won't come to the Lord, perhaps, as we'd like, but, but we need to be involved in that and, and reaching out. Uh, we're having our first Christianity Explored course here at our new offices downtown Charleston in a couple of months. And, you know, pray for us on that. We're, we're, we want to see several unchurched people come to that and, and learn the gospel and embrace it. Um, in terms of the the last commitment uh, that we that we have is to to love one another. We really encourage. There's so many passages, Ephesians four, um, so many passages that communicate that uh, the church is a body. You know, First Corinthians twelve, uh, uh, Romans twelve. We are the body of Christ. Uh, we are uh, the household of God. Uh, we are living stones in the temple. There are all these wonderful, illustrative uh, sections of Scripture that communicate that we are not to be Lone Ranger Christians. In fact, uh, the, the notion is ridiculous to think that you could be a Lone Ranger Christian and be a biblical Christian. And so we really encourage strong body life at Christ Church. Uh, we encourage people to get involved in one another's lives. We, we encourage regularly for people to have each other in each other's homes. We, we tell them we don't want the church to have to program this. We want it to be organic and real and for you to get involved in each other's lives. Have lunch downtown together. Have, have coffee with someone. Reach out to each other. Encourage one another. Bear each other's burdens. Pray for each other. We, I'm constantly communicating these, these, um, uh, these principles because I believe the Bible 
uh, all over the place uh, communicates them. So we're committed to that as a church. I want to step back for one minute and talk about the evangelism and mission. And one of the other things that I've, I've heard you say, and I'm a firm believer in, is this idea that contextualization cannot be king. And yet I hear in you a passion for mission, but you're not willing to sacrifice the church on the altar of contextualization. And can you kind of flesh that out as you begin to think about how mission and contextualization um, can be misused and are better when they're done in the proper way? Yes, the problem isn't necessarily contextualization. The problem is over-contextualization. It's putting all of your confidence and your hope in being so contextualized to your culture that you're going to draw people by being like the culture. Um, I see that as thoroughgoingly unbiblical. Um, you know, there's this idea that there's a different kind of person, say, living in a, in a downtown Charleston, South Carolina. And so I need to really study what that is and become like them in order to reach them. And uh, quite frankly, I just think that's a nonsense. I think that's the wisdom of the world. I think that is the theology of glory in contrast to the theology of cross, which means that we're going to do ministry on our own terms and not on God's. And so uh, I believe that we can when we come into a culture, we need to know the culture for sure and seek to understand the culture and not to dismiss it. And in many ways, we should embrace a lot of it and celebrate a lot of it in order to connect with friends and neighbors. However, we never give into it and we never affirm that which is ungodly or unbiblical. Um, we never affirm idolatry. Uh, we never confuse people on that regard as well, because I think a lot of church planters they get so concerned about contextualizing and, and connecting with people in their culture. And so they start dressing a certain way. They start talking a certain way. You know, you've heard ministers like Driscoll and others who've used foul language from the pulpit. Um, there's uh, guys who will, you know, uh, drink too much because they're trying to reach out to people at the pubs or um, so you, you have this mentality that, that somehow, living in this way is going to help me to, to, uh, to plant this church. And I say, absolutely not. I say that we try to understand and appreciate the culture and celebrate it where we can. But in the end, we must preach against the idols of that culture. We must confront the culture with the good news of the gospel. Uh, because what people need is not another slick, uh, you know, uh, over contextualized, uh, 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 pastor coming in and, uh, trying to be like them. What, what, the, what the world needs is they need the good news of the gospel to come, uh, from a man who is full of conviction, full of faith, full of love for Christ, and is putting confidence in the words and in, uh, the good news of the gospel and not in his own ability. I, I, I think it's hard for a lot of young church planters because they feel this extraordinary pressure when they wake up every day that they need to be a certain person or to communicate in a certain way or to dress the right way in order to reach people for Christ. And let me tell you, you know, I'm a I'm a <laughs> I'm from California. I was converted at Clemson University in South Carolina. Uh, I was a a, a, a pro athlete. Um, I, I wear khakis and a collared shirt to work every day. 
And uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be a hipster. I'm not trying to be an artist. I'm not trying, we're not having wine and cheese parties. We're not doing any of that. And uh, we have about 200 people coming to our church on Sunday mornings. And there are uh, well-known artists, well-known professional athletes, surgeons, professors from the universities downtown, teachers, uh, uh, military people, uh, on and on I can go with the, the people that God is drawing. And it's, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's all different kinds of people. And see, that's the beauty of being committed to the ordinary means of grace, because in the end, those who are being drawn by the Lord hunger after true and serious-minded discipleship and worship. And so in the end, you're going to reach all different kinds of people and not just not just one demographic with all of your, your ways that are more connected to a certain age group than they are to Scripture. Because the danger of over-contextualization is you begin to remove the offense of the gospel. And that becomes a yes. problem because it is going to be offensive. <laughs> and uh, it is the rock of stumbling because Christ himself was offensive. And I, I just, I, I'm really resonating with the, and I don't want to use the word balance because it gives the idea that you're just trying to walk in the middle and you're not, but you're committed to mission and you're committed to to being all things to all people in, in the right way. And it's not to remove the offense of the, the gospel. Let's talk for just a few minutes, though, about how contextualization can be good. Because obviously the reformers contextualized. They took the, 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 the word of God and they brought it into the, the vulgar uh, language of the people, which the Roman Catholics would have said, that's a no-no. And yet they believed that that was an essential part of making, making sure that the word of God was understandable. So can you kind of flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think we always need to uh, communicate in a way that our people will be able to understand. You know, it, it's interesting in our in our age, our connectedness the world over has has made the world very small. And in terms of English speakers, it's uh, you know, when you talk about contextualization today, it's different than fifty years ago, isn't it? Um, because so many communities are similar in terms of what they know and what they're thinking about. And uh, so I, I do think that we need to have touch points and, and connections. We need to, to connect people between the two worlds, as John Stott says, between the, the first century and our own century uh, in our preaching. I think we need to meet people where they are and we need to, to seek people out. Um, uh, I, I personally, I'm, I'm, I'm regular, you know, we made a commitment and we just moved in about two weeks ago uh, to move, to have offices in the heart of downtown Charleston. So our, our office, the office I'm sitting in right now, it's, uh, it's on the corner of, of Broad and King. Uh, there probably is no more historic, uh, corner in, in the Southern part of the United States than the corner of Broad and King. And, and, and we're here and, and already in the last couple of weeks, we've been meeting with people for coffee, for lunch, uh, uh, we've had some some uh, people come up here to the office for meetings who live downtown here. Uh, we are we are committed to to that, and so I think when you're thinking about contextualization, you want to think about your community, uh, what's important in your community, uh, what how accessible you want to be to the people in that community, um, and those kinds of things. I think it's it's 
it's over contextual uh, contextualizing uh, to uh, to try to reproduce cultural things. I don't think the church should be doing coffee shops and wine and cheese parties and art shows and those kinds of things. I just don't. Um, I don't see that in the New Testament. I don't see that in church history. I think the church needs to be committed to doing what it's called to do, which is to make disciples through the ordinary means of grace. We need to stop being so focused on what many would call pre-evangelistic activities. And we need to be more focused on getting involved in people's lives, loving them, reaching out to them with the gospel, and trusting God with that. There's too much monkeying around. There's too much, uh, 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 as, uh, as my, my late father used to say, tiptoeing in the tulips. Uh, in our evangelism, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading a biography on Knox right now, um, uh, the new one by Jane Dawson, uh, Yale University Press. I'm getting ready for a lecture I'm preparing. And one thing I'm going to focus on in the lecture, the biographical lecture, is that Knox was a courageous man. And, and though at times he, he probably spoke too forcefully and um, uh, was a little cavalier at times, of course, we want to, to, to give thanks for the courage. In our day, what we need are courageous ministers uh, who, and courageous church planters who are not uh, dilly-dallying, who are not monkeying around and trying to be like the culture and, and doing more you know, cultural contextualizing than they are exegeting the scripture and teaching it and preaching it. Uh, we need courageous ministers to, to really trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the means of grace that he has given to them uh, to be tools in his hand to to build the church, and so uh, that that's you know a roundabout way of saying remember where your confidence needs to be. And really, it's right there that you're defining what success in church planning looks like. Absolutely, and um, you know, I, I, there was a a plaque on a, a Christian leader's desk that I heard of many years ago, and it said. Uh, faithfulness, not success. That was the, the thing on the, 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 what was written on the plaque. And I'll never forget that. It, it always reminds me, it's always in the back of my mind, faithfulness, not success. You know, we, you know, we've got a couple hundred people coming on Sunday morning. That's not, that's not success in the minds of, uh, you know, the church, a Joel, Osteen, yeah. a Joel Osteen or, uh, you know, uh, some network that's trying to plant a mega church or whatever. But, you know, when you are, when you know your people's names and you know their kids' names and you visit them in their homes and you uh, are feeding them with the means of grace and you're looking at them in the eyes from your pulpit and you know them personally, you know their struggles, there's nothing more precious than that. And whether that's a church of 50 or 500, that always needs to be uh, the goal is to have that kind of... uh, approach to ministry so that we can say at the end of the day, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm not trying to be successful. I mean, we, we fail, we don't do it all as we should, but, um, but, but we're by the grace of God attempting to apply biblical principles to ministry. John, I want to spend just a few minutes of our remaining time together talking about a book you wrote back in 2008, which is called In the Splendor of Holiness. Now, it's your your look at worship in the church, which affects a lot of what you're already doing in Christ Church. And I just picked a couple of points I kind of want to bring out from the book. The first is, um, what is liturgy? Yeah, the the book 
started out as simply as pastoral letters to my congregation uh, in, in Douglasville, Georgia. And uh, from there, it was, it was put into a booklet for a Sunday school class a couple years after I wrote those letters. And then from there, it went into to publication. And uh, the book really is meant to be a primer or an introduction to Reformed worship. It's, it's, not, it's not meant to be exhaustive. It's, it's got a lot of uh, recommendations in the back of the book of ways that you could go on reading about this important subject. Uh, but it really is just an introduction to, to help people to know why we do what we do in worship. And, and I, I begin talking about liturgy. Uh, liturgy is, is essentially the order of worship. It's, it's what we do in worship. And every church has a liturgy. Some, some churches, it may be hard to discern what that liturgy is, uh, but there is some, some semblance of order in every church there, even in a, even in a charismatic or Pentecostal church, there's certain things that ha- happen every week. Uh, the, the lady raises her hands at a certain part of the, uh, the, the, the hymn, the opening hymn <laughs> that may not be written down, uh, but it's certainly a part of what happens every week. And so, so when, when the reformer sought to, to define what a true church was and is in the 16th century, uh, Protestant reformation, they knew that they needed to reform worship, first of all, uh, because that was going to define who a church is and what they will be in the future through that discipleship. So uh, the liturgy is everything that takes place between the start of a service and the end of a service. And for the reform, the beginning of the service would be the call to worship, where through the word, God calls his people to worship. And then and then at the end of that service, you have the benediction or God's blessing over his people. And everything that happens in between there we would say, needs to be according to the regulative principle of worship, which simply is that we ought to do nothing uh, which is not commanded in Scripture. We only worship God according uh, to His Word, and we don't add anything in. So that, that's the way we would want to worship within that liturgy. Now, when you talk about the regulative principle, you're bringing out we're not going to do anything except what God's commands. And, of course, we look in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament— and we see the seriousness at which uh, the events took place when people disobeyed that and the effects of, of God's wrath and anger, uh, judgment in some cases because of bringing strange fire to God or their, uh, their, their hearts not in the right place. Um, but many would say, well, come on, John, but today we're under grace. That, 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 isn't, that isn't something that was for us, that was Old Testament stuff, and you're transposing it upon us. How do you answer those kinds of questions? One thing we learn from Scripture is that God cares how he's worshipped. There is no doubt about that. And um, when we look at the Old Testament, uh, of course, we see uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 uh, offering strange fire. Uh, we have the golden calf incident. Uh, God cares how he is worshipped. Uh, you cannot read your Bible and not come to that conclusion. And it's true in the New Testament as well. Uh, God certainly cares how he is worshipped. We see the abuses being rebuked and corrected uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, and uh, really a defining passage in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 28 and 29, where it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's interesting because you really do have connections there with the Nadab and Abihu incident in Leviticus 10, where they were consumed with fire when they worshiped God unacceptably. 
And when you read this verse, which again is in the New Testament, uh, it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. If there is such a thing as acceptable worship, there's also such a thing as unacceptable worship. And, uh, you know, a lot of young people, they just think that anything goes, that as long as they're sincere, that that's really the only requirement. And, uh, you know, you can be sincerely wrong about something. And so we need to worship God according to his word. That has always been a staple, a fundamental principle for the Reformed and those who are serious about Reformed confessionalism. Uh, we believe the Bible teaches uh, us how to worship God. And it, it, it really is defined and outlined in Acts 2.42, isn't it? Sure is. That when we worship God, we come together in fellowship to, to hear the apostles' teaching or the Word of God uh, preached. We come to the Lord's table and we come uh, to pray. On page 27 of your book, you make this statement. You say, biblical worship is a holy dialogue between God and his redeemed people. That really spoke to me, that idea of the dialogue, the back and the forth, which uh, gives credence to the idea that in worship, we are responding and we are communicating. It's not just a preacher up on a stage who's doing a monologue. It's not just having musicians play and sing some songs, but there is this communication. And the communication is from God to his people and his people in response to that. Um, can you flesh that out a little bit more in the way you understand that? Sure. Worship. A lot of people come to worship thinking that really it's just them uh, flexing their muscles uh, in worship to the Lord, uh, uh, giving God the praise that is due his name. And they, 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 they really come at it that way. Uh, others come to it kind of in an opposite way. They come to just sit and there's a, perhaps what is being communicated as is entertainment and with the, the high energy praise bands and the long sets of music and the, the entertaining pastor who sits on a stool and tells a lot of jokes so there's what's being communicated is either the more zealous evangelical coming to express himself to God and um, and and then the other who would come and sit and just be entertained or even be entertained and fed or whatever. And there's really not much response. Uh, both of those things are wrong, aren't they? Um, what worship is properly understood is first and foremost, a receiving of God's promises and of his grace in Jesus Christ. It is first and foremost us coming as weary pilgrims, having fought against uh, temptation and against the flesh and the world all week, and we come to hear once again that we are loved by God. Lord, tell me you love me again through the means of grace. Tell me you love me again uh, as, as your word is read, as we sing these hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, as we as, as I hear the word preached, remind me that I am loved and kept by you in Christ and forgiven. As I come to the Lord's table, as I witness baptisms, tell me again I'm loved by you. And then in response to those various aspects of the liturgy where God is communicating this to us, we respond with love and wonder and praise through our prayers. Now, Calvin understood singing as sung, as sung prayers. I think that's what they are. So I think we could really divide up the service with the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the uh, administration of the sacraments, and prayer, singing being an aspect of that prayer. And all of that in the service is a dialogue. There's, there's the, the God speaking to us and us responding to Him. You know, one thing we do in our, many of our services is we, ha we read the Ten Commandments. 
That's God's word being spoken to us. How do we respond to that? We respond to it with confession of sin. And then after we confess our sin, we are all asked to stand and to receive the assurance of God's pardon. There again, God is speaking to us his promise that though my law says you are a sinner, you've come and you've recognized that and you've confessed your sin and you're looking to Christ for your salvation. Now, I'm going to give you a wonderful promise from my word that if you are in Christ today, you are forgiven and that you are mine. And, uh, and then from there, we sing and we respond to God again through our songs. That, that's the way the service uh, moves forward. I've, I've told, I've taught worship at RTS for many years, and I always tell my students, show me a better service that more clearly proclaims the gospel uh, and, and helps us to rightly understand ourselves as sinners. And, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a big con- congratulations. I, you know, there, it just doesn't, it's not out there. <laughs> um, not that, not that everything, every liturgy needs to look exactly the same, but the liturgy that was, uh, uh formed first in, 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 in Bootser's, uh, Strasbourg and then in Calvin's Geneva and then in Knox's Edinburgh, it is hard to beat. I'll tell you. Hmm. One of the aspects you just brought up is that, uh, singing is our, is our, we're singing our prayers. And I know that when I entered seminary for the first time, I was confronted with this idea of singing the Psalms. It's, it's the inspired hymn book. And that was a new aspect for me as I began to wrestle with that. And of course, then there's the wrestling match between, well, then what place does modern hymns have? And is there a place for modern hymns? And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely, there's a place for, for modern hymns. Um, you know, a lot of good things are being written today. I wish there was more, quite frankly. Um, I was just lamenting a little bit with um, our our music uh, uh, accompanist that you go on the internet and you kind of search through some of the more modern worship songs, and a lot of them are either more fit just for listening to in your car on the radio or they're more fit for for kind of a, a concert, not not really for for congregational worship and the things you want to um, to encourage there, like like actually hearing people singing next to you and um, and being able to, to 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 keep up with the the song and the meter and so forth. Um, we sing as a congregation the you know traditional hymns from the Trinity hymnal and some other hymnals that have been helpful. We sing from a variety of psalters, metrical psalms, and we sing some of the more uh, modern and contemporary songs like the Gettys, Getty Townend songs. Um, there's a new song we're about to incorporate, which we, we saw from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is, is beautiful. I'm not even sure who wrote it. Uh, we sing some of the uh, hymns for Modern Reformation by James Montgomery Boyce. So we sing a whole group of, of different. So I've written a couple of hymns that we, we sing. So, I, you know, we're not against modern as modern per se. However, we just, the, the, the funnel that we'll go through will be that, is it theologically sound and rich? Um, is it singable for a congregation and is the melody appropriate to, to the, to the lyrics? And those, are, those would be some of the things we would uh, work through as we're considering songs for our church. One last aspect of this worship discussion that I want to have with you is the idea of the confession of sin and the pardon of sin in a service. Um, it is one of the things we've been incorporating in our 
uh, worship services here. And as I was doing uh, research on this, I noticed in Geneva that when uh, Calvin was working through his own liturgy, the uh, Geneva Council was willing to allow for a public confession of sin, but they didn't feel that allowing for a pardon of sin to be done because of the reflections it had upon the absolution of sin by a priest and the Catholic roots. Um, as that kind of comes through, um, what is helpful about, why is it helpful to have a confession of sin that's public and a pardon of sin that's public? Because it seems to be something that was very passionate to Calvin on this issue. Yes. Um, in Reformed and Dutch circles, it would be called even an absolution. Um, we, we call it a, a pardon uh, of sin. Essentially what this is, is it's not, you know, placing the authority in the minister that when he raises his hands and says this, that uh, through this action that uh, people are absolved from their sin as, as so to, you know, remove faith from, uh, from this. Um, what this is, is for those who have confessed their sin by God's grace and are repenting of their sin, that in the service, there's, I think, a, a place and an important place to have that declaration from the Word of God, that those who have confessed their sins can know and trust and believe that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's in no way uh, validating or, or reinforcing a Roman Catholic doctrine of absolution to do this at all, uh, putting the power in the priest. Uh, we believe that, that this is an important aspect of worship because it's reinforcing that God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And when we come to him as his people and confess our sins and repent of our sins, that God is faithful and just, and we're making that declaration by reading a Bible passage that clearly um, uh, reinforces that God is a God of mercy by grace through faith in, in his crucified and risen son. It's a wonderful time in the service. We ask people to stand and to receive this, and uh, it's you know again and again in a, in a Reformed service. We come to the Lord's table every week. You know, In a Reformed service, God's the gospel of Jesus Christ is being heralded in many, many places along the way in that. Um, and then to finally come to the table and to have it driven home into our hearts, just a marvelous thing. So we, we, we love our Reformed liturgy. Uh, we're, not, we're not giving it up. Um, and we would love to see more people embracing it rather than uh, flattening the liturgy to make the service basically one long set or two long sets of, of praise music and then a, uh, you know, a topical sermon. That's, that's, basically what services have turned into. And I would challenge that to say, you know, that's really not the best for the discipleship of God's people. Uh, what's best is to clearly communicate all of these truths, these important foundational truths about, about man, about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit. It's always being reinforced in a, in a biblical liturgy. John, I just want to thank you. I mean, I'm just so encouraged sitting here listening to this discussion, this your philosophy of church planting, which really uh, 
equips and strengthens the planter rather than has them looking for the the new uh, the new techniques, the the new books, the new con- concepts. You're taking us back to where there is assurance where God has promised to work. Um, the assurance that he is going to use his ordinary means of grace. And all we have to do is be faithful to that. So thank you first for encouraging me, uh, encouraging my listeners on upon that truth. I'm just blessed to know that you're out there, you're doing this, and God is blessing it. And it's just it's an encouragement to me, I know, and my listeners as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the just the overall sharing your life and your ministry and what God has been doing with us. Well, it's been a joy, Aaron. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook